The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. After the headlines today, I interview the famed and iconic attorney Mark Garagos. So stay tuned. A federal judge dealt a death blow to the Trump campaign's efforts to overturn President-elect Joe Biden's win of the presidency on Saturday by dismissing a closely watched lawsuit that sought to invalidate millions of Pennsylvania votes. It is not in the power of this court to violate the Constitution. Judge Matthew Brand of the U.S. District Court in the Middle District of Pennsylvania wrote on Saturday in a withering decision hours after the final round of filings in the case came in. The judge wholeheartedly rejected the Trump campaign's attempt to throw out the Pennsylvania vote, noting that Biden has won the state and results will be certified by state officials on Monday. Biden has a margin of more than 81,000 votes in the state. Yesterday, the former governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, a staunch ally of Donald Trump, said it was time for the president to end his futile gambit to overturn the results of the election. Christie said Trump has failed to provide any evidence of fraud, that his legal team was in shambles, and that it's time to put the country first. Here are some of the latest bullet points about COVID-19. 256,000 Americans have died from COVID-19 so far. The country has also set a hospitalization record for the coronavirus cases. Pfizer asked the FDA last week for emergency approval for its vaccine, which might start being deployed in mid-December. U.S. records 12th million case as virus surge continue. As curfews multiply, the U.S. breaks more records for the new coronavirus cases and hospitalizations. Healthcare systems struggle as newly detected cases approach 200,000 a day in the U.S. Despite officials' warnings and pleas, travel over Thanksgiving is expected to hit a pandemic peak. Hawaii is the only state where the virus cases aren't rising. Renowned French author Nicolai Baveres has called for European powers to halt Turkey's expansionist policies and place sanctions on President Erdogan. In an article in Le Figaro, Baveres said, Now is the time for Europe to harden its position by practicing a firm policy towards Turkey. He said Europe should stop Turkish accession to the European Union, place sanctions against Erdogan and his relatives, and offer support for Greece and Cyprus. Bavera said that since rising to power, Erdogan has gradually tightened his control over the machinery of the state, placing his relatives in sensitive posts and terrorizing the population in an unprecedented totalitarian drift. Internationally, Erdogan has pursued aggressive policies that have destabilized the entire region, especially by engaging in wars in Syria, Libya and Nagorno-Karabakh. He has been helping Azerbaijan in a proxy genocidal war and ethnic cleansing of Armenians in Artsakh. Baveris also accused Turkey of supporting Islamic terror extremism at the expense of moderate Sunni countries and aiming to present itself as the Sunni world's leading force. The Blunt Post with Vic. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt.
For today's Let's Get Blunt, I want to talk about something that makes me sad to even look at, but um, I don't have a choice because, you know, we have to live life on life's terms. And that is the failure of some of the international organizations that were set up and are funded to take care of certain issues uh, around the world and they simply work selectively as to what they even acknowledge. Um, what I'm specifically talking about is this latest proxy genocidal war and ethnic cleansing that Azerbaijan and Turkey unleashed on the Armenians of Artsakh in their own ancestral homeland on September 27th. And what Turkey and Azerbaijan did, which is to bring ISIS uh, and Syrian, Libyan, Pakistani mercenaries, paying them to kill Armenians. There are multiple captured mercenaries on video who admitted to having been promised $100 extra or bonus for each Armenian beheaded. Now, this is obviously against international law, United Nations laws. It's a war crime. It's crimes against humanity. So why hasn't the United Nations said anything or the Council of Europe? Why hasn't NATO done anything? Turkey is a member of NATO, which it shouldn't be. And Turkey should be sanctioned for this. But we haven't heard a word from NATO. Other things they did was they used banned and illegal uh, weapons, such as cluster bombs, on civilians. They targeted uh, civilian populations indiscriminately, including children's hospitals, schools, in entire cities. Another thing was using uh, white phosphorus munitions to set entire villages on fire and burn forests down just because they couldn't get to it. So where are the environmentalists? Where are the environmental organizations? Where's Greenpeace? Where is the European uh, Union's uh, environmental wing to look at this? This is a huge environmental disaster. But, uh, you know, when you have power, when you have power like Turkey does in the region, and when you have oil um, the way Azerbaijan does, somehow these organizations turn a blind eye and the band plays on. It's very selective. Erdogan, uh, who I consider a terrorist and a tyrant, was able to destabilize Syria using mercenaries. He did it in Libya. He has been uh, instigating a war, essentially, with Greece and Cyprus. Uh, the invasion of Cyprus continues. And he, he got Azerbaijan to attack uh, Artsakh and Armenia, and yet uh, now, ironically, he's asking to be part of the European Union. And I hope, and I think that the European Union knows better. Uh, an exceptional person, uh, the French President Macron, has been uh, very direct and loud about his opposition to this. But uh, it's very disappointing for United Nations and NATO and Greenpeace and others to just sit this out. Uh, and the last one I want to mention is UNESCO. Now, parts of uh, Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh again, there are monasteries and churches and other monuments going back millennia, uh, some from 4th, 5th centuries. And what Azerbaijan has done in the past in 
territories it's captured has destroyed and demolished all these monuments and churches and such uh, to make sure that there are no traces of any Armenians and Christian life having been there. And they're doing it right now as we speak, like this very moment that's probably happening because I've been reading about it every few hours of how they're going and uh, destroying churches and ancient monuments. Um, a lot of them, it's on video. In fact, Azerbaijani soldiers post them on their social media uh, handles, and that's how we see it. So where is UNESCO? Where is the outrage? You know, why? It's it because Armenia, a country with the population of 2.9 million, is it that ins insignificant that it's ancient monuments don't matter, that its people don't matter. So where is the outrage? It's being barely covered by media and these international bodies that are funded to do this and would claim that they do it, they're not. So, you know, it's sad to talk about it, but one has to be blunt and uh, bring it up and continue to talk about it and hopefully uh, we can stop from, you know, stop the the destruction of so much of cultural heritage and wealth in the hands of Azerbaijan and Turkey. Let's get blunt. The blunt post with Vic. One of the most recognizable criminal defense attorneys in the world, Mark Garagos, is known for winning landmark cases. His countless A-list celebrity clients and being an advocate for the underdog, along with his associates at Garagos and Garagos Law Firm in Los Angeles. Mark was one of the lead attorneys in two groundbreaking federal class action lawsuits against New York Life Insurance and AXA for insurance policies issued in the early 20th century during the time of the Armenian genocide of more than 1.5 million Armenians. The two cases settled for over 37.5 million in 2004 and 2005. Just a few of the famous clients he has represented have included Michael Jackson, Winona Ryder, Gary Condit, Susan McDougall, Scott Peterson, Scott Barney, and Jesse Smollett. In his podcast, Reasonable Doubt, Mark brings significant details from the past and present experiences and examines how current law affects society, current events, and are brought to the forefront. Mark Garagos, welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. How are you this morning? I'm excellent. How about you? I am well, considering. Appreciate you being on the show with all your wisdom and uh, knowledge, helping us today to uh, sort of see where we're at and what's happening in the country and worldwide. Well, I'm happy to be here. It's been too long. I should have been on before. Yes, absolutely. The activists, attorneys like you and KPFK go together. Um, so, Mark, first I want to ask you about, uh, since there have been some recent developments with the election debacle, or the afterward, I should say, with uh, Pennsylvania basically telling President Trump that there, there is no case, not, no, there's no proof of any kind of wrongdoing or fraud. Uh, how do you see that situation? What's your perspective on where that could lead? Well, I've, uh, I've been arguing, at least on my podcast for a while, that these court cases were not where it was going to, this was going to end up. The, um, the, both the president and people close to him, namely Ken Starr, who's the former independent counsel and um, 
and David Bossy and Rudy Giuliani, believe it or not, have all been talking about the state legislature. And um, that's where I think this is going to end up. That's where the uh, the Supreme Court in the couple of opinions have talked about uh, that this fight is going to be. And if you saw within the last couple of days, two of the legislators, Republican legislators from Michigan, uh, made a trip to the White House at the president's invitation. Right. And that's always been where I thought this battle would be, because you're not going to win in the courts. And obviously they've had a uh, record that only a uh, somebody fighting hopeless cases would have um, in terms of not getting any traction, dismissing, being dismissed by uh, federal judges repeatedly in most of those courts and the limited number of state courts. What they're trying to do, uh, I believe, their game plan is is to create enough um, noise around the idea that there was fraud so that there is a wind at the back of some of these Republican legislators in some of these key states, whether that's Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, to get them to uh, uh, send an electoral slate that does not reflect what the popular vote was and force this into a fight in the House and then hope that that fight gets taken to the U.S. Supreme Court where they're hoping the U.S. Supreme Court bails them out. Right, which is something that Trump has been setting up. He's been, setting, he's been setting it up for a very long time. Um, and, uh, and that's always been kind of their end game. And so people have been, I think, distracted by the legal cases, which have been miserable. If you're looking at, uh, at, at uh, the results, miserable in the sense that um, they're filing actions that are not getting anywhere, being routinely either dismissed or laughed out of court. Um, that isn't the end game. That's just background noise to give a, uh, cover for the state legislators to do their dirty work. Yeah, even uh, former governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, talked about what a terrible legal team President Trump has and what they've been doing. In fact, he went further to say that uh, President Trump should just stop and accept, you know, the results of the election. I don't think he's going to do that. I could be proven right. wrong. But I don't think, and there's a there's a, a compelling reason for that. I mean, I've defended enough powerful men who have faced an existential threat from prosecutors over the course of my career to understand that he knows that the minute he's no longer president and he's no longer cloaked in that basically, for lack of a better term, presidential immunity, that he's got an existential threat and from the New York state authorities. He can't pardon his way out of that. And so he's going to cling on to power at all costs. He doesn't want to expose him or his family or those close to him. Right. That's actually a very good, uh, very good point that you made. So let me ask you this, Mark. Do you think um, there is enough of anything to go with if they do take it to the state legislators, is there any hope for them? Well, the state legislators would have to just say, we're, they would have to put party over country. They would have to say, um, basically, even though our boards have certified the results as uh, accurate, we're not going along with the will of the people and the votes of the people. It's uh, basically 
I mean, you could make an argument that it, that it would be a treasonous act. Which, which Republicans have been doing for four years. I mean, you know, the way the Supreme Court nomination and the, what they did and the hypocrisy of it, where with President Obama, it was one type of a rule uh, when he had eight months, almost eight months, to uh, appoint a Supreme Court justice. And yet with President Trump, as we were in election, they, uh, they went ahead and... Uh, went through the process. So I wouldn't put that past them. So um, thank you for that. It's obvious. It's obvious. Other than there's been some people who peeled off. I think uh, the senator from Pennsylvania came out uh, as we're taping this today and had said that he's seen no fraud and uh, that the president should give it up. And and there's been some other senators who have said the same thing. I don't know that. um, I think at the end of it, I think... There are some people who are going to say, okay, let him explore his legal options. I don't think they understand when they say let him explore the legal options. I think that is they're either blind to what the end game is, which is the end game is not these kinds of futile legal um, uh, plays that they're making. The end game is to get state legislators to basically undermine democracy and and to send slates of electors that don't reflect what the popular vote was. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with the iconic and famed criminal defense attorney, Mark Garagos. So let me ask you this. Um, I think I know from what you said, I, I could understand all the legal challenges that President Trump will face once out of office. How about some of his cabinet members after he's gone? Uh, which ones, if any, do you think should be prosecuted, or at least charges should be brought against them by the new Justice Department? I, I think the Justice Department will probably uh, be very judicious in what they do or going forward. I mean, it's easy, even though uh, Trump is uh, has. Uh, made a argument um, repeatedly about that the Justice Department was weaponized against him and that he has wanted and and been kind of a um, proponent of the Justice Department going after uh, his uh, political predecessors. I just think that's a the politicalization or criminalization of the political process is fraught with danger. So I've never been a big proponent of that. I think we've seen this kind of periodically over the last couple of decades, and it's never a good thing. Ironically, I, and what um, has been kind of, for me personally, delicious irony is that Ken Starr, who single-handedly set out to try to undo President uh, Clinton's uh, re-election, back in the 90s, is now the one who was not only defending Trump and his impeachment team, mind you, he was driving force behind Clinton's impeachment, but now he's also laid out the framework for this basically slow-motion coup d'etat that they're engaged in, and just shows you that this is a guy that was not only a former solicitor general, but also at one point considered to be a, a leading candidate for the Supreme Court. And by the way, uh, several members of the current Supreme Court also were, were uh, people who worked in Bush v. Gore. So, um, you know, the politics of all of this is uh, rich with is rich with irony. Yeah. The only person that sort of really, I mean, there's so many, but the one person 
that whose actions have been extremely egregious to me, and I would like your perspective as a as an attorney, is William Barr and how, to me, it seems like he's acted as President Trump's defense attorney, and I think he's just broke. I mean, I'm not I'm not an attorney and I'm not a legal expert, but it just seems to me he's broken not just protocols and rules, but actually laws in defending the president. Well, you know, that's a very interesting question. I'll tell you, I, um, in our backyard in San Diego, there's a uh, U.S. attorney, assistant U.S. attorney, Phil Halpert. And um, if you were to Google Phil, he's been practicing, he's a lifelong federal prosecutor as long as I've been doing this, uh, knocking on the door of 40 years, Mm -hmm. and was the prosecutor. I, I tried jury trials against him. He's very able. He's kind of a, um, a a lifer, if you will. He resigned in protest recently over Barr's actions. And to me, that was stunning. The Phil Halpern that I knew was about as much of a DOJ team player as you'd ever find. And yet he couldn't even stomach what is going on. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is very egregious. You you have so many different expertise and, and, and you're so famous for so many different things. I could talk to you for hours, but I want to I wanted to uh, talk to you about the most eminent thing that's happening right now, which is the aftermath of the elections. And um, I'm not going to go into all your you know super high profile cases, but I do also want to talk to you about what happened and continues to happen in Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, as you know, most people know. On September 27th, Azerbaijan, in a proxy war of Turkey, actually, and help of Turkey, attacked um, Artsakh. Um, you know, it was a genocidal attack with the uh, aim of ethnic cleansing and uh, breaking so many international rules using banned uh, illegal um, weapons such as cluster bombs and white uh, phosphorus munitions to burn forests down and and so on and so forth. Before I sort of put any words in your mouth, I want to hear your perspective on what happened and where do you think we are now? Yeah, I don't want to, um, I don't want to, uh, depending on your, who your viewership is, I want to kind of set the stage for this. Artsakh is a ancestral uh, homeland for the Armenians uh, literally has been there for since time immemorial, and Turkey and Azerbaijan, who is basically you know Tur- Azerbaijan, is kind of a faux, um, I call it a faux state, created in by Stalin uh, after the genocide and, and World War One, and basically um, imposed upon the Armenians of Artsakh, an artificial uh, dominion and control, colonization, whatever you want to characterize it as. But clearly that was not a, um, uh, that had nothing to do with their rights to the land or anything else, because the Armenians have been there, as I indicated, for thousands of years. So the there was a war 30 years ago during the disintegration of the Soviet Union, and that produced an independent Artsakh. Um, And for those who don't know, Artsakh is, um, like Armenia, a a Christian democratic outpost in kind of a sea of Islamist 
um, hostility. I mean, to uh, one side, you've got Iran. The other side, um, next to Armenia, you've got Turkey. You've got Azerbaijan. And um, obviously, uh, all of those or most of those countries, not Iran so much, but Azerbaijan and Turkey, would like nothing better than to completely eradicate and eliminate Armenia from the face of the earth and um, as a uh, kind of added bonus, the Artsakh is considered to be, by them, the first step in the complete ethnic cleansing of Armenians. And basically, when I say first step, also renewed step, because this is part of what's been a 100-year move by uh, the Turks to finish off the genocide that was started by the Ottoman Turks in 1915. So what, what has happened is they waited and they've had, there's, there's all kinds of reasons for why this occurred now. Um, when people ask why, you know, why did they do it right now? This has been, this is not a, I would say spur of the moment decision by the Azerbaijanis and the Turks. They've had this uh, move in play for almost two years. They uh, know they had cover with uh, Trump and President Trump's close relationship with Erdogan, the brutal dictator, genocidal maniac, um, uh, who is probably, um, um, as I've said, is the uh, is one of the most repressive and evil people since Hitler. And I don't say that lightly. I mean, this is a man who uh, clearly has got major, this is a psychopath. Yeah. And he's, uh, he has got covered by the, by Trump, whether, you know, you want to interpret it as a um, result of the fact that they're paying Trump uh, royalties or licensing fees, or whether it's just because of Trump's admiration for somebody who's routinely referred to as a strong man. But they knew, and a lot of this has to do with uh, mixed motives. I mean, there's a financial motive because of the oil and wanting to use uh, the land of Armenia and the gold mines uh, that are apparently in or underground in Artsakh and to get those. And it's all about resources, oil and gold. And they waited until they knew that the America would be uh, sidelined and, and um, unfortunately, from a personal perspective, they waited for the diaspora, uh, which is us, Vic, you and me, um, to be asleep at the wheel uh, to do this. And, uh, and so they've run in, they've taken it over. Russia, for a, um, for a number of reasons, Russia... Um, and that's the subject of another show, right. waited until the 11th hour to come in and help. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of fault to be laid in Armenia itself um, for not understanding this situation or having the foresight to understand what was going to happen. But at this point, what has happened is a series over the last six weeks, seven weeks of war crimes uh, and literally terrorist activities, state-sponsored terrorism by Turkey and Azerbaijan, which, by the way, did not start here. It, this is part of a more global strategy by Turkey right. that 
started in Syria, went to Libya, and now is being executed here. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with the iconic and famed criminal defense attorney, Mark Garagos. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was a brilliant setup and explanation for those who are not very familiar with this topic, which is, which is okay. And uh, it's one well, thing. Well, it is okay, and I understand. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I live in the basically a non-Armenian world, so to speak. And a lot of my non-Armenian friends, acquaintances, do not understand the import of what's happening. They know that we as Armenians believe that this is an existential threat to our country and our people. But they don't understand why that's important, not just for Armenians, but for everyone. What is happening right now is a global shift that should frighten anybody who believes in democracy. Absolutely. Erdogan has been, as you said, uh, has been destabilizing the region with he using Syrian mercenaries against Syria, then against Libya. Lately, he's been threatening Cyprus, a country that Turkey invaded in the 1960s, and Greece in the Mediterranean. And, uh, of course, Artsakh and Armenia, their number one uh, enemy. Well, and I will tell you, the Greeks... The Greeks and, and Greece has been a long time symbiotic, uh, had a long time symbiotic relationship with the Armenians and understand just what a existential threat this particular uh, Turkish regime and the Turks historically have been in the region. I mean, the, uh, the, the idea that Turkey is in NATO is beyond belief, uh, but, yeah. you know. And that's something I wanted to ask you, but excuse me, I want to add one more thing. Let's not forget that a third of Turkey's population are Kurdish, a very oppressed um, people who are also have been under prosecution for you know, hundreds of years, and especially lately. Turkey continues to kill Kurdish humanitarians and activists and people who basically tell the truth, journalists and call them terrorists. And the sad thing is the West just buys it, at least the masses that don't really know what's happening. They just buy this as, oh, you know, Kurdish terrorists, which is the actual opposite, because as you said too, I mean, what Turkey's right. been doing is terrorism regionally and in Artsakh and to Kurdish people. Yeah, and by the way, the Kurds um, have been on top of it, part of the, um, the destabilization of the Department of Defense and the generals with this current Trump administration was when President Trump basically turned his back on the Kurds um, over the objections of our Defense Department because they've been such great partners of ours in all of these, uh, as Trump would call it, endless wars. Yeah, absolutely. Kurds have been helping us with uh, Syria. And Correct. We, the Persh Mega have been uh, unbelievable. We turned around and stabbed them in the back. So, Mark, next question I want to ask you, and I won't take too much of your time, is one of the things that frustrates me, and I think frustrates a lot of people, is the inaction of uh, several organizations and bodies and even individuals throughout the world who kind of sat idle while this happened, uh, and that's NATO. United Nations, Council of Europe, in some ways, UNESCO. And a lot of people want Turkey to be sanctioned by NATO. 
um, or the UN. Um, as an attorney, and I'm, I don't expect you to sort of, you know, have all the answers or anything, but what do you think about all of that? Let me be a little critical of, uh, or engage in a little self-criticism. As Armenians, we have been so focused on kind of, we've been naive, is what I would say. Mm -hmm. Azerbaijan and Turkey, for 25 years, every, every case that I've got where we try to get some kind of recognition of the genocide or try to get a uh, compensation for Armenians who had, for instance, insurance policies or bank accounts or properties in Turkey as a result of the genocide. They've got a vibrant and well-oiled, pun intended, machine, PR machine, mm -hmm. at work. And uh, we don't. And mind you, we've got, we're in the diaspora, and specifically in California and Massachusetts, we've got some of the most vibrant diasporan communities that you could ever imagine. We've had wild success here in America, which is why we love America. And we end up supporting politicians who don't um, support us. And we end up not doing the things we need to do. I think we need to, Armenians need to take a page from Israel. And, um, and you know, I've got a good friend. Um, uh, I'll keep him nameless because he's such a lightning rod. But a uh, prominent lawyer who um, has talked about for years the fact that you that he holds accountable the administrations, whichever administration it is, to consider Israel first. And uh, that's something Armenians should do. We should understand we need more of our own homegrown politicians and we need to hold them all accountable. Yeah, I actually echo everything you said. I've thought about the PR, you know, the PR angle. As you probably know, long time before they attacked on September 27th, uh, Azerbaijan and Turkey hired six uh, lobbying firms in D.C., top firms and PR firms, to set the ground and lobby politicians as well as uh, do media placements and control the narrative. And we do have a few great advocacy organizations, Armenian-American advocacy organizations, but I feel like that they have so much on their plate, especially with... Um, well, we've been focused on recognition, recognition, which I understand, right. but, you know, there's... there's um, I don't even want to go there. I mean, it's awful. It's awful what has happened. Yeah, I think there should be nonprofit that has to do with uh, media, like truth in the media and anti-defamation of Armenians. And, right. uh, and instead of having Greeks and Armenians doing the other, look, Mercury PR, which was populated or is populated by people who are always when they were in the government, uh, pro-Armenia to promptly go and to get a paycheck from Azerbaijan and Turkey um, uh, turned around. That's why there were the protests in LA. Yeah. you got to hold these people accountable, but at the same time, we need our spokespeople. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mark, before I forget, your podcast is uh, Reasonable Doubt. Reasonable Doubt. We just did a live version of it in, um, yes. uh, in uh, Palm Beach. Just dropped last night. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So for those it's with of you, Adam Carolla, he's the draw, not me. Yeah, <laughs> I doubt it because when I announced that I was uh, going to have you on the show, people were so excited, and I know a lot of people are going to want to hear you and all your wisdom. Uh, so and 
Uh, so tell me, how often um, is the podcast and how can people hear it? It drops, it's on Podcast One. Uh, you can get it on Apple. It drops uh, Saturdays. Okay. Um, and it's called Reasonable Doubt with Adam Carolla and myself. And uh, we have a lot of fun doing it. Fantastic. What, um, what exciting, anything that you're able to talk about that you have projects right now? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I've got projects, nothing I can talk about yet, but I'll come on maybe in two weeks and tell you. I love that. I love that. Mark, I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been to talk to you. I really appreciate you on the show. Um, this has been a great experience. I'd love you to come back. Anything you want to add before we go? No, thank you, Vic. It was great talking to you, and thank you for having me. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks, Mark. That was the world-renowned and famous criminal defense attorney, Mark Garagos. Thank you very much, Mark, for being on The Blunt Post with Vic today. Appreciate your time. The Blunt Post with Vic. Next, I want to play you excerpts from an interview that was done by CivilNet in England with the Honorable Baroness Cox about Artsakh Nagar-Nagarabagh. Baroness Cox is a member of the UK House of Lords since 1982 and founder of the Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust. She spent time in the early 90s in Nagar-Nagarabagh and witnessed war crimes perpetuated against the Armenians. She spoke about the 2020 war and what she's doing to campaign for the rights of the inhabitants of Nagar-Nagarabagh. Welcome. Today we're joined by Baroness Cox, a member of the British House of Lords since 1982. She's also the founder and CEO of the Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust. Baroness Cox's name is synonymous with the Karabakh conflict. She's been a diligent observer and avid promoter of peace. Uh, Baroness Cox, thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to be with you in these very, very difficult and sad days. I would just like to assure you that what is happening in Artsakh is the source of prayers and concern and as much political leverage as we can apply in our country. And I would also just like to say, as I always say, if you've heard me speak before, you've heard me say it again, that we who are not Armenians must say a big thank you to you for holding that precious front line of faith and freedom for the rest of the world. We are in, indeed very, very humble and very grateful and as supportive as we can be. Well, we really appreciate that. And to start off, I'd like to ask you, what is your perception? What do you think about this 2020 Nagorno-Karabakh war? Well, I think it is absolutely tragic, of course. And when you see the film footage of what's happening in Stepanakert, it reminds you of what it was like when I was there in 1990-91, and there were 400 grad missiles a day pounding in Stepanakert from Shushi above and it looks horribly familiar. And of course, this time we know that uh, Azerbaijan is helped by Turkey and has a lot of very sophisticated weaponry. And we've also been told that possibly up to thousands of jihadists have been brought in by Turkey from Syria, Libya, and transported to Azerbaijan. So clearly it's a very, very big challenge. And we watch this space with great interest, great concern, and we'd love to hear from anyone or you people on that front line, what we can do to help, or if there's any further news that doesn't come to uh, the BBC or other news channels, such as any attacks by Turkey or Azerbaijan or Armenia itself, because that is a very serious uh, um, breaking of international conventions 
Karabakh, as we know it sadly, is a disputed territory, but Armenia is a sovereign nation, and Turkey and Azerbaijan must be held to account for that, as well as the brutal violations of human rights in Artsakh itself. Well, you first took interest in uh, the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict in the early 90s, and you condemned the blockade that was imposed. Um, why did you take an initial interest in this situation in the conflict and speak out in support of the inhabitants of Artsakh? Well, when I was appointed to the House of Lords, it's a great privilege. I wasn't into politics. It was the best baroness I'd ever met. But I asked God how to use this privilege. And the message came very clearly to speak in the British Parliament is a wonderful place to be a voice for those who do not have a voice or have voices whose voices are not heard. So we do work with Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust or HART for people suffering from oppression, persecution, war and conflict whose voices on the whole are not heard. And I originally became involved because I've been doing quite a lot of work in Poland and Russia and I was invited by Yelena Bonasakharov, of course, known to all Armenians, uh, to speak at a conference she was organizing in memory of what would have been Andrei Sakharov's 70th birthday. And I was chairing a meeting, and there was someone who's known to all of you, Sori Balayan, and he spoke with passion about what had already begun in the war with Operation Ring. And I was deeply, deeply concerned. He gave a lot of details, and I reported that to a full conference, and they asked if I would lead a delegation down to Armenia to verify the situation, see the suffering of the people. And we did actually cross the border a little bit illegally into Azerbaijan to hear both points of view, because you won't get Western media coverage if you only put one point of view. So that was how I became involved with Zori Balan, and I've been there many times with him and seen the suffering of your people. And it breaks my heart because having endured all that suffering and rebuilt your land so beautifully with your new cathedral, with your very big quality housing, particularly for people who were homeless, and the rehabilitation center by Varda and Televosian, which was internationally recognized as a center of excellence. To think that all that may be under threat now is a source of immense sadness. Mm. Uh, one of the significant things about this time around is Turkey's involvement. Uh, will that impact the way that the UK and other European and Western governments respond to this crisis, do you think it will make them less likely to engage with the situation? Uh, moreover, I would ask that uh, people have called this in a way a civilizational front, but um, there is a sort of lack of uh, support in many ways to the Armenian side, whereas Azerbaijan has had voices of support from Turkey, Pakistan, and many other countries. What do you think about this? Well, I think it's very sad and very disturbing. One thing I would say is I think it's very important for Armenia and for those of us who are concerned about what is happening to you to broadcast very, very loudly the right the Armenians have to be in Artsakh. Uh, Turkey and Azerbaijan are always saying they occupied territory, they're getting back occupied territory. Well, you will know there is a very good justification for the Armenians being in Artsakh. And I do think that point needs to be made very, very forcefully through the press. Because many people otherwise will believe that Azerbaijan and Turkey are fighting a just war, which they're not. And we know that. But people need to be told why it is not a just war, that the Armenians have every right, both historically, but also the political aspects, like 
make the self-determination song to be then and to kill that lie that's being propagated, which justifies the attack by Azerbaijan and Turkey on Artsakh. So my real priority would be to get that message across through the media to the major world. Mm. Well, it's been 30 years since the initial Nagorno-Karabakh war, and people forget that this conflict be began because of a struggle for human rights. Um, you were there in the early 90s, and you concluded that the inhabitants of Nagorno-Karabakh were being mistreated by Azerbaijan. Could you speak a bit about this? Indeed. Um, I often reported uh, that Azerbaijan committed war crimes, crimes against humanity in so many ways. I visited the village of Merahan after that had been attacked by the Zeri military, and I saw the burnt homes, and worse still, I saw that they, they dug up for us, which is difficult for me to do, the corpses of civilians who'd been killed and beheaded, and I saw their corpses and the proof of a massacre against civilians, which is absolutely well, totally unacceptable. As there, as I say, when 400 grad a day were pounding in on civilians in Stepanfield. I brought back photographs of children uh, who'd been shredded by cluster bombs, and I brought the photos back. And um, I actually asked at that time the senior person in the Foreign Office um, if the Foreign Office or Britain would make representations to Azerbaijan because that is a violation of international conventions. And I'm afraid. The answer I got from the senior person was no country has an interest in other countries, only interests. We have oil interests in Azerbaijan. Good morning. They're not giving away secrets, but I've spoken about that in Parliament. It's on the record. But that is really disturbing when interests take precedence over human rights and justice. And I hope that this particular war uh, will not be influenced by interests, but by justice, human rights, and humanitarian concerns, and particularly on the offensives and outright slaughtering of civilians, mm. which is unacceptable and is totally unjust because they have every right to do that. Mm. Well, uh, in this current climate, what can someone like you do and what are you doing in Parliament and outside Parliament? And um, what sorts of responses are you, are you getting? Good question. Um, I'm, Vice-Chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Armenia, and we've written a very powerful letter signed by the members of the All-Party Parliamentary Group, Tim Lighton, and he is the chair, and that has gone to Dominic Raab. I hope it will have some effect. I've tried to speak three times, and I don't know if the next one will work, but I've not been able, I've not been given an opportunity to speak on the subject in Parliament. I put down what we call a private notice question last week, which was not accepted. Then someone else asked a topical question, question time, and they have a ballot for people who can ask supplementaries. I was not selected. I asked for another private notice question yesterday, was not selected, and I put in to speak at another topical question tomorrow. I don't know if I'll be accepted or not. But if the Armenians are wondering why I've not been speaking in Parliament, I'd love them to know that I am trying, but so uh, I've not been given the opportunity. But we are writing with is speaking very broadly in the, well, you know, to our followers, uh, to people who we know are interested in this, and we've sent them out briefings, which have given all the background. So we have got the message out, but if they wonder about my silence in Parliament, so far I've tried without success. Maybe I'll get success tomorrow. Hmm.
And um, successive uh, UK governments have been closely allied with Turkey. And it seems that uh, the UK is one of the European countries that has been not particularly vocal when it comes to uh, a lot of Turkey's policies in not only Armenia, but other countries, other neighboring countries. Do you think that the UK government is forfeiting a responsibility in, the way, in a way to speak up about this and prioritizing the benefits it gets uh, from its close relationship with Ankara? Well, we press the UK government to, to do what we think is the right thing to do in terms of human rights, justice, and the violation of human rights. And uh, we watch this space. Absolutely. Well, uh, Baroness, thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you for the privilege of speaking at these very, very tragic times. And please do accept our message of love for your people, of profound respect for your people, and as our prayers uh, that you will uh, have the resistance you need to this horrendous aggression by Azerbaijan and Turkey. And my plea that you will make it known worldwide that the Armenians do have a historic and political right to be in Artsakh and that Turkey and Azerbaijan are not uh, correct in validating their assaults because of the illegal presence of Armenians in their land. It's very important to get that truth known. And that will, I think, help the understanding of the situation and I hope more support for Armenia and Artsakh. Thank you again. And we appreciate all the work you do. Blunt Post with Vic. Today I have three tweets for you related to COVID-19. The first one is from journalist Dan Rather. He tweeted, they won't wear masks, but they'll wear tinfoil hats, not the best of looks. Dan Rather is always very clever and poignant. Rachel Maddow uh, delivered this emotional monologue after her partner fell ill with COVID-19. She tweeted, it won't necessarily be you. It'll be the person you most care about in the world. And how can you bear that? And the last tweet comes from Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. And she simply tweeted, for our country, wear a mask. Before we go, I want to thank my extremely talented producer, Ricky Herrera. And uh, of course, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jaramie. Uh, both Instagram and Twitter, my handle is at Vic Jeremy, that's V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. The Blunt Post with Vic.